we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, it's a good chapter. It's a good chapter. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm not, you may not like it, but it's a good chapter. <laughs> so 1 Corinthians, um, the whole book, you know, uh, the, apparently Paul wrote several letters to the Corinthians, more than just two scholars say. I don't know, I wasn't there, I'm just, it's hearsay for me at this point. But we have two letters for him, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Some scholars think that 1st Corinthians could be his second letter or his third letter. Uh, Pastor Tony probably knows all the, the, the super smart details, so you can ask him for that. I'm just the fill-in guy on Wednesday. But <laughs> I thought it was funny. But, um, and 1st Corinthians has a, a, well, both Corinthians really have a special place in my heart. Like, after getting saved uh, when I was 22, um, you know, this is one of the early books that God brought me through, and I remember just reading it, you know, at night, like with the light on, and just like, wow, like soaking it up, not really understanding it, but going, this is truth. And, you know, I still don't totally understand it, uh, you know, who does, but it's an awesome book. And, uh, you know, I'm calling the series Be a Believer through First Corinthians. If you've been here, we've gone through the first four chapters. Um, and I think it's really kind of cool. It's a harsh book. It talks about a lot of things that, you know, we don't really like to talk about. Um, it deals with a church that, that has a lot of sin issues. And uh, Paul and, and the Lord really is very direct about sin in the Bible. And uh, Corinthians is one of those. And I think that's probably why we don't like to read. We go, ooh, that's a tough one. Let me go read uh, Ephesians or Proverbs or something that's a little more, you know, gentle. But, uh, you know, Corinth. Corinth was a city that, um, it was a port city. It had a decent-sized population. And... Uh, the church was there. Paul started this church. But the church had a lot of problems. The church was very worldly, as we say in Christian circles, where a lot of the things that were done in the world were going on in the church. And as we'll see, that just shouldn't be because a lot of the things that, that the world does is sinful. And those are the things that Christ died for, for us, that we might know him and go to heaven. And, and those things sh- shouldn't be a part of our lives anymore. But um, Corinth was well known, you know, like cities. A, a modern day are known by things like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. New York's the Big Apple. You know, Corinth maybe had a, a saying, you know, to live like a Corinthian. Like, you know, you're such a Corinthian, bro, because you do all these things that, that maybe were popular in that city. Um, but tonight, the message is called Keep the Feast. Keep the Feast. First Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, let's pray real quick one more time. Uh, Father, thank you again for your word and just your grace and uh, that you give us your word that we might know what's wrong and right and that we might know you better and uh, God, that we might be corrected, instructed and prepared for everything you have for us, God. And I pray that tonight you would speak through your word, God, that that I would receive from it, that uh, everyone here would receive from it and that that God, it wouldn't come out harsh or wrong, but that God, uh, your word would just go forth and I just ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. Cool, so tonight... Again, keep the feast. Keep the feast. You'll see why it's called that later. But this is a hard but not harsh letter. Hard but not harsh. It's straightforward. It's straightforward, especially this chapter. Um, It says a couple hard things. It it tells them to do a couple hard things. But it's not harsh. I think a lot of times we confuse those two, especially in modern society, where when we do a hard thing, people say, man, that's harsh. That's harsh. But... It's really not meant to be harsh, you know, in a sense of harsh for harshness sake. Um, you know, the Bible calls sin like it is. 
and so should we. Um, and let's just read the first verse because uh, it's a doozy. And believe me, I was like, Lord, like, Ashton and I have been going through Revelation. Can't we do that? No. Okay, so, <laughs> but, so it wasn't like that. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, seatbelts on. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. Stop there. That's thinking. He says it's actually reported. And what that kind of says to me is like this shock and dismay. Like, it's actually reported. Like, you know, when you read the news today, you go, oh my goodness. Like, what is going on? Like, is this real? Is this real? Like, this is me reading the news at lunch. But, is this real? It's been reported. And reported means to hear of or learn by hearing. And I like the King James Version in this instance because it says commonly. It's commonly known. It's like when people talked about the Corinthian church, they knew about the sexual immorality that was going on there. It wasn't like it was like this hush-hush thing that, you know, the closer he got, the more he found out about it. But it was like, wow, like across Greece, across the whole isthmus, you knew this church was messed up. But what a reputation. What a reputation, you know. What's, what is our church's rep? I don't, you know, I know some things, but I don't know everything that other churches or other people think about us or, you know, the people upstairs or, you know, the people in the community or maybe the people that know you and, and know that you go to a Calvary Chapel. Um, but what is our church's rep? And what is the church overall? What is the church's rep in the world? What does the world think? Is it, unfortunately, like a lot of those people who are on TV who are pastors or claim to be pastors or apostles or prophets or whatever they, they claim to be for the day, I think a lot of people, that's what we think of. Um, but I think the real core of the church's reputation, you know, not just this outward thing that a lot of people try and use as an excuse, but it really comes from our own personal reputations because we're the church. You know, this building was empty concrete. Some guys came in and filled it up and put some chairs in it and we said we're having church here, and that's when all of you showed up, thankfully. You know, because that's what the church is. It's you and me. And our personal reputation is more than just a personal reputation. You know, the Bible says that uh, no man is an island unto himself. When, when we do something, even if we like to think it only affects ourselves, or it's only a personal decision, it affects everyone around us, whether we like it or not, in a good way or in a bad way. And this word, uh, King James Version, again, I love it, this word for sexual immorality, which is, almost sounds politically correct, is actually fornication, which is almost sort of an old term these days, but um, you know, I'll break it down into the Greek. And the Greek word is pornos. And the Greek definition for this is actually a term for a male prostitute, um, which actually puts a whole different spin when you think about, I mean, don't think about, but the idea of pornography, where it's really male prostitution. If you're looking at pornography, you're prostituting yourself. The people who are involved in it are prostituting themselves. It's not just um, a little action here. And I won't get into that because that's, you know, this message is heavy enough as it is. But this term can also be sexual immorality or sex outside of marriage, and that's any sex. You know, if it has sex somewhere in the name, it's sex. If it revolves around those parts that are called the sex organs, it's sex. Um, but our culture, I don't have to tell you, but I'm going to, is saturated 
with sex. What's that term in advertising? You know, I do uh, graphic design and, and web design, or I try to at least. Um, you know, it's like you sit at a computer all day and you, you're the one who makes it. It doesn't mean you're uh, whatever. But our culture is saturated with it, and advertising has that slogan, sex sells. You know, there's these commercials, and you go, I can't watch that. because It's like, what are they even selling at the end? Oh, oh it was this tiny little MP3 player. Or, you know, oh, there was a car in that commercial? You know, like, <laughs> like even like foods, it's like really weird nowadays. But we won't, we won't go off on that. We'll stick with what this, this first verse talks about, and even these further verses that go on, because this is even worse than that. It says that the type of fornication here doesn't even have a name in the world. Like, if you've been to high school, you probably know names for all sorts of different activities that I won't repeat here. But the world names things it likes, especially sinful behaviors. Like, man, I'm going to go get loaded. With what? I'm going to go get wasted. By what? You know, no blazing up in here, wasteoid, for you 80s kids. You know? You get it. And there is no blazing up in here, wasteoids. But me either. But the world loves to give these passionate, usually derogatory terms to these behaviors that it so loves that uh, that really kill it. Um, However, this thing that we're going to get into in a couple minutes, the world even frowned upon at this time. The world even went, what? We don't even have a name for that. Like, we can't even look it up on some website to get a definition for it. Like, you know there's a problem when the church is doing something that even the world hates. I'm not talking about doing right things. You know, the world hates doing right things, but there's a problem if, if you're a believer or you claim to be a believer or the church as a whole is doing something that even the world goes, we don't even do that. Like, that's disgusting. And you think about certain uh, behaviors or certain attitudes. You know, the modern church scandals covered by the news reported you think about certain denominations who are well known for their molestation of children or certain denominations that ordain people that are homosexual. Um, you know, the list goes on. Or, or, you know, certain churches or leaders that you've heard of that have gotten into serious sexual sin that's been unrepentant. And this should not be. And, you know, the media loves to report it. It's like, you know, I don't know. Some pop star, I'm not going to name a pop star, but if some pop star does something crazy, it might make the news. It might even be, you know, lifted up by the news. It might be like, oh, that's cool. But if someone in the church does it, the world automatically pounces on that. And it's all over news, and it's like headlines. And it's, oh, the church, oh. You know, the world loves that because the world can use that to not believe. The world can use that as ammunition. And, and, and they're right in that sense, you know. We should not be able to give them any ammunition. This should not be... You know, instead, we should desire to live honorably, especially the church leadership. Um, and that's you guys, because you're a church. But that's also those like myself or the worship team or those in children's ministry. Because automatically, whether it's right or not, there's this, this other you know, position placed on it. You know, there's this expectation that's placed on someone who stands up here or plays up here or you know, wears a name tag from the church. All of a sudden, you're like an official Christian. And what you do is worse than what everyone else does, which it might be. But Hebrews 13, 18 says, Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. Paul says that he has a good conscience towards others, but 
the, the real heart is the desires to live honorably. And that should be our heart as believers. We need a desire to live honorably above anything else, no matter where we're sitting or standing tonight. You know, um, the, I read a couple commentaries after I was done studying, and, you know, I kind of read, uh, I didn't read them all, but kind of, you know, read parts. And Matthew Henry's commentary says uh, that this guy was probably leadership. And when leaders fall, where are our eyes? You know, it, it should sway you a little bit, but it shouldn't sway you off your faith. Because if it does, where's your faith? But, uh, yeah, it's not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. I'm not sure if I read that part, but that a man has his father's wife. Like, Paul has to describe it because there's no, like, term for it. But what was going on in their family that he has his father's wife? Was there, you know, this is just conjecture here, but was there a divorce? Was the dad not around? Was it a really young wife? Like, the dad got old, married someone, like, really young that's, like, his son's age. Um, was it a midlife crisis? Um, could it be his daughter? Was mom not around? Does dad, does dad know? Is son just a nominal Christian? Is there no discipline? How was the son raised? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, what was the condition of this family like, where this went on? Um, you know, the breakdown of the family. The New York State, I read this in the news the other day. The New York State, I guess, whatever runs all the kids in the state who are controlled by the state, urges gay couples to adopt. Several states are removing references from mom and dad Everyone has a mom and dad, you know, whether it's a test tube or whether, you know, you actually have a mom and dad at home. You know, you guys may have seen this, like, television news commentator says, you know, the children are the communities. You know, we need to get this idea that there's the parents out of our minds and realize that it's the communities. What? The community wasn't in that labor room with my wife. It was my wife and me watching Duck Dynasty. You know, like, <laughs> the community doesn't, you know, take care of that baby in the middle of the night. And even if they did, it's still not their baby. But how is our own family life? You know, what's our family life like? Like, whether we're married or single or we're in a family or, you know, maybe we don't have a family. What is that like? And what is, you know, how are we adding to that? But also, what's our church family like? You know, we're family here. You know, like, I have parents, I have brothers and sisters, and I have some family members who know the Lord and some family members who don't know the Lord. But I have brothers and sisters in Christ as well. You know, I have people that I look up to almost like parents in the faith and almost like children in the faith. Although, heaven forbid, they would be my children because they'd be in trouble. But just because, you know, me for a dad, I'm just not thinking of them. But how are these things? I encourage you tonight, no matter what the state of these affairs are at this very moment, God can restore. God can restore. Let's go on. Let's read two through five. And, uh, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this, so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I'll just start on that last second, on that last part. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Wait, isn't this guy a believer? 
Uh, yeah, at one point. The spirit may be saved. You know, all this is coming around because this guy's doing something that could risk. I know I'm not going to get into that whole conversation, but, you know, whether he was saved or once saved, always saved, but he's doing something that the Bible says that people will not inherit the kingdom of God for. But the, the first part says, uh, you know, you're puffed up. The church was arrogant. And what an awful word to think of, you know, to be known as, as believers, as arrogant. You know, it's like Jesus was humble enough to leave heaven and come to earth. And we walk around arrogant sometimes, myself included, you know. It's like, what, you know, I think that's probably one of the worst insults to be called as a believer is arrogant. Um, but they were arrogant against God and thinking that this was okay. They were arrogant in thinking along the lines of tolerance with their society. Like, oh, let's tolerate this. Let's love it. You know, everyone does their own thing, and it's okay. And, you know, we're great. We're, you know, we're smarter because of this. You know, we don't listen to the Bible. We listen to what society says. You know, this is an old book. Um, they were arrogant in thinking that they were better or more spiritual for grace without love. You know, Calvary Chapel gets a reputation sometimes for having greasy grace, where it's like too much grace. Um, I would say no. I would say we're a graceful church. But when, you know, when hard things need to be said or done, I believe for the most part, Calvary does that. I would say that this church would be a greasy grace church where it says, oh, you know, it's all good. God loves you. Do whatever you want. God loves you. You know, Romans 6, 1 through 2 says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So, like, do we keep on sinning so that God's grace keeps pouring on us? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? If you died to it, you know, why are you going back to it? The Bible talks about, you know, a, a dog returns to its vomit. Or, you know, like a, a washed pig goes back to its, its mud. You know, the, instead they should be mourning over the sin. And what do we feel and, and what do we do when we hear of sin in other people's lives? Or sin in our own lives, especially. But we need to mourn over it. You know, divorce, separation, sexual sin, pride, arrogance. Are we quick to judge? Oh, look, 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 look. Put it on Facebook. Or are we grieved in the spirit and mourn over the person's condition and those whom it affects? We need to mourn over it, guys. Ecclesiastes 7, 2 through 4 says, Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men. And the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's like when something bad's happened, a fool just wants to go out and get wasted and, and laugh all night. And then next day, the situation's still there or worse. But a wise person says, oh man, what's going wrong? Am I doing something wrong here? You know, and, they, and they deal with it. They mourn over it. And if we don't allow God to convict us and grieve us over it, we too will become hard. We too will become tolerant to the point of letting people die in it, and we will eventually entertain and enjoy it ourselves. Like, if we don't start going, oh, that's wrong, eventually, you know, it's going to invade our life in some part. You know, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, um, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Um, and Paul says to take this guy away. He says, when... When someone is in outright, unrepentant sin, we must separate ourselves from them. After all, other efforts have failed. And now, I'm talking about a believer here, someone who claims to be a believer, who is in just outright sin. You know, we all sin, so I'm not saying, don't hang out with anybody. 
or as soon as someone sins, cut them off and kick them out and delete their number and you know, you know, call the cops on them. You know, I'm not I'm not talking about that. But we do need to have some. There should be this start of this separation there. Like, oh wait, evil company corrupts good habits, and also we'll see why in a minute, why this is good for them. Uh, James four six through seven says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, this is the key, I think, for this whole chapter right here, is therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You know, therefore submit to God. When God says to do something, you know, especially when it's a, a serious situation, you know, an emer- like sin, when there's outright sin, it's an emergency. When God says, hey, the building's on fire, get out. Or the building's on fire, put the fire out. He doesn't say, you know, Go back to watching TV, and when the commercials come on, you know, look for this, the, the fire extinguisher. Or, you know, when, when it feels good to do it, or when there's a right opportunity to do it, you know, call 911. You know, when, when there's an emergency, we need to act. You know, that whole idea of desperate times, call for desperate measures. Um, this isn't really a desperate measure, but it's like a desperate measure on their behalf. It's not a desperate measure like, oh, we got to get away from it because I don't want to be affected by it, and they're horrible. But it's really a desperate measure, like, this person is in serious trouble. We need to do what the Bible says to deal with it. Um, but I think there's also like a line. Like there's, some, like there's believers who are walking with the Lord and who aren't in any like lifestyle of sin or they're not like in blatant sin. And then there's like this guy who, who claims to be a believer, is maybe in leadership, but is also like just, hey, yeah, you know, this is my dad's wife and she's my wife. And yeah, you know, like come up here, honey. And the church is like, oh, isn't that cute? You know, that's not, it's disgusting. But who's in unrepentant sin and who doesn't even, like, think it's sin? But then there's, like, someone in the middle, maybe, who is a believer, knows what the Bible says, believes what the Bible says, but for some reason or other is struggling with something, has fallen into something, has maybe, like, backslidden and got stuck in something. And, you know, for whatever reason, I'm not saying necessarily to cut them off. Maybe you do, and we'll see other parts in that. But there's almost, like, a different method. It's like if... If, they, if they're struggling in their sin, then we reach out. If they're, no, this ain't sin. You know, God even says it's okay for me to do this. Uh, no, it doesn't, you know. Then there needs to be a hardness there. doesn't mean that we stop talking to them, but we'll see some of the actions towards that in a little bit. But it says, uh, you know, Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Like, if someone is stuck in something and you think you're better than them, you know, before long, you'll probably fall into something yourself because pride comes before the fall. But it's our duty to, you know, the heart here is to restore the person, whether it's through, a, you know, a sharp word like Jesus with the Pharisees or a soft word like Jesus with the woman who was caught in adultery. You know, it really depends on the person's heart. But Paul says he's already judged the situation. Like, it's obvious you know, Paul doesn't need to sit down and pray about it, get out the scriptures, ask probing questions, and find out all the nitty-gritty details. He goes, it's obvious. Like, you know, I'm away from you guys. I'm writing a letter. It's obvious. Sometimes we just have to call it like we see it. You know, with major sins, that's usually the way it is. But there's no gray area in this situation. He says here, when you're gathered together. So, not like take the guy aside at the coffee shop and, and talk to him. Maybe that was the first step. But in this situation, it's gone so far where he says, hey, 
you got to call him up in front of the church, and you got to say, this guy is doing this, this is wrong, and deal with it. The guy obviously didn't, didn't repent or didn't want to, and so he's saying to, to cast him out. But it's sometimes necessary for public discipline for a believer who's in sin. And some churches take this way overboard where it's like everyone's shepherding you and sin sniffing, and anytime you sin, you know, you can't come here anymore, and everyone who's in sin has to be cast out of the church. Um, you know, again, it's like, where, where is this person on the, the spectrum of, you know, repentance? Um, but with leadership, you know, sometimes it's necessary for public discipline. Like Matt, uh, Jesus says in Matthew, like, if your brother has something against you or he's done something against you, go to the one-on-one. If they don't listen, bring a friend. If they still don't listen and it's like they're sinning against you, bring the church leadership. And then if they still don't need the church leadership, bring them before the church. And treat them like an unbeliever because obviously... If you're a believer and a friend comes to you and you go, ah, no, and then a believer and, you know, your friend and then another friend comes to you and, and they humbly talk to you and say, hey, this is going on, and you still resist them, and then all the pastors at your church say the same thing and you still don't listen, it's like there's something wrong there, you know. There's something wrong. Um, but the, again, it's this whole idea of restoration. Like, it's not doing this just to judge or just to beat up. It's saying, hey, we want to make sure you're ready for Christ's return. Not that we have to do anything for salvation, but is your salvation genuine? And also, because church is meant to be a safe haven for believers. Like, when you come into church, you should be able to be confident that the person next to you is not going to, you know, steal your money. Or the person next to you is not going to, like, use you for anything or, you know, anything. You should be able to come in here and go, ah, you know, I can finally relax. Like, the highway's nuts, work is nuts. Every place else I go is nuts. And I come in here and there's a bunch of nuts, but I don't have to worry. You know? <laughs> Myself included. Like, we should be able to come in here and go, oh, these are the people I can truly be friends with. Like, sure, I have, you know, I have friends outside church, and, you know, I wouldn't, like, not want to be friends with other people. But I know that when I come here, at least I go, okay, these people are believers. Like, you know, I don't have to worry. Like, I just don't have to worry. And that's part of the, the role of the church as a believer. Like, you know, there needs to be this whole making sure that people aren't being abused. And the same thing with the leadership. Like, if Pastor Tony or Pastor Owen or Pastor Jim or Pastor Vinny, like, you know, if one kid is beating up on another kid in the children's ministry and Vinny goes, ah, oh, isn't that cute? He knows how to, you know, throw an uppercut. You know, an uppercut. See, I don't even know how to fight. Uppercut. Like, uppercut. Like, you know, oh, isn't that cute? Oh, look at that bruise. You know, it's purple. I've never seen that shade of purple on an eye before. You know, you're going to go, Vinny, what's up? Vinny wouldn't let that happen. You know, he would make sure that, hey, this kid's going to get disciplined. He's going to go talk to the parents. He's going to make sure that this other kid's all right, put a, you know, a stake on the kid's eye, and make sure that's all right. Like, there has to be this deal. And if that kid is unrepentant and keeps wanting to punch everything in sight, sorry, you can't come to the, you know, the children's ministry anymore. But then if that kid stops punching people, yeah, come on back. You know, it's not because we don't like you. It's because you're being bad and you're hurting people. But it's only for a season, you know. Like I said earlier, like there's several letters uh, that Paul wrote. It doesn't mean we're missing parts of the Bible. It just means these are the parts that are Scripture. Um, but Second Corinthians seven eight through twelve says, uh, "For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly mar- manner." 
that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Think like, I'm so sorry, I'm going to kill myself. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in, uh, in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you? What clearing of yourselves? What indignation? What fear? What vehement desire? What zeal? What vindication? In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that I care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Now, you know, maybe Paul's not exactly writing about this situation. Maybe it's from one of the other letters. But I'm making the jump here because I think it makes, you know, some sense here. You know, there's been situ- you know, I've kind of been on multiple sides of this in my life. I've been on the side of it where someone I've known has been, like, just blatantly sinning and claiming to be a believer, and I've had to, like, deal with them in this manner. And then after, because the Lord instructed me to. But then after a time, the Lord said, you know, this other, this other part that, you know, to go back and, and to, to have fellowship with that person again. I've also been in a time when I've been struggling with something, and I've had to be taken out of leadership. You know, I was a deacon for many years. I started going through a season in my life where I was just really struggling with things, and it was better for me not to be a deacon, and I was taken out of it. And after a season of sorrow and repentance and God dealing with me, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen after that. You know, honestly, at that point, it's like I just wanted to be a, a believer full on, you know, and I didn't care what happened. You know, I care about after, but, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen, and then God made me a deacon again, and then God blessedly and gracefully ordained me. And that's the thing. It's like, there's grace. There's restoration. But it's like, where do we fit in on that? Are we, are we going to not be repentant, or are we going to be sorrowful in heart? Are we going to allow the Lord to, to chasten us in a situation? And are we allowed, you know, the Lord to use us in a situation when we see someone else going wrong? Because if we don't tell them, they're going to go astray. They're going to, you know, other people are going to see an example and they're going to say, hey, look at that church. Like, they can get away with that. It means I can get away with that. And then they never know what, what, what the Lord did. You know, why the Lord died and rose again, thankfully. Um, I'm just going to see if I can skip that. Uh, it's in 2 Corinthians 2, but it says, The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge that you reaffirm your love to him, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. And again, this, this is not just for this person who's in sin, but it's also to test the obedience of the, the church and other believers around him. To say, hey, are we going to be obedient to God's word, or are we just going to say, ah, let bygones be bygones? But those who truly have a heart for God will be corrected, instructed, and restored by this, um, they will be, because that's the way God's designed it. You know, God disciplines his children. But it's the duty of all believers to be obedient, especially in the hard things. You know, if it's something's easy, you know, like the Olympics, the guy who runs like the 1,000-meter race or whatever, that's probably pretty hard. But, you know, you go sharpen a pencil, you don't get a gold medal in your picture on Wheaties. You know, I don't know what they do today. But... You know, when you do something hard, it's obviously there, it takes more effort. It takes more to do it. But the all-around reason is so that they'll be ready for Jesus' return. Like, in the end, it says, the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You know, no one that is defined by their sin will inherit heaven. Like, the Bible makes it clear that you must be born again or born from above to enter heaven. And that happens by repenting of our sins, saying what I've been doing is wrong. God, what your word says is true. 
I mean, you don't need these exact words. They're not like a potion. But, and God, I believe in Jesus that he died on the cross for his sin and he forgave me and I can go to heaven because of him. Let's go on, six or eight. Uh, your glorying is not good. Ouch. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Uh, therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You know, he says their glorying is not good. They thought it was something to be proud of. You know, look at how tolerant and graceful we are. Eh, you know, we get it. The rest of the church doesn't get it, but we get it, you know. Leaven. Um, it's like yeast. It's used to make bread rise. It's like any leavening agent. But all you need is a little, and the whole piece of dough will rise. Um, the Bible used, I was thinking of a joke, but I won't share it. Uh, it's used as a symbol for sin in the Bible. Like when the Bible talks about leaven, it talks about sin. Um, you know, uh, if you've read the Old Testament or heard about the Israelites coming out of Egypt uh, at the day of Passover, they would say, make an unleavened bread and unleavened cakes because they would be ready for the angel of the Lord to come by and they had to slaughter a lamb and put the blood over. And then when they, that way, when it was time to flee Egypt, they could run out of there. Um, and that was the picture. Get rid of all the sin in the house. Go through the whole house, make sure there's no leaven in it. No leaven, because we don't want this bread to rise. Um, and that's where we get Passover. That's why when you take communion, you take a little cracker. You don't like have a big old like bread bowl soup thing from Panera. It's like a cracker. <laughs> you know, but that's what, Paul says, be a new lump. Yeah, that's a bumper sticker. Be a new lump. Like, thanks, Paul. That made my day. I already feel like a bump on a log. Now you're telling me to be a new lump. <laughs> but what a compliment. I think some of you, like, uh, bakers might know what a, a friendship bread is. Like, I've seen, I didn't know what any of the stuff was, like, in the church. And I was around women who love to, like, cook and share things and guys do. But, like, friendship bread, like, apparently you make this dough and then you give a little bag of it to someone else and they give a little bag of it to someone else and it, like, all spreads around. I'm like, how old is that dough? Like, you know, is there a piece in there from, you know, Moses? You know, how many friends do you really need? You know, when does this bread end? But that's the same idea, like, you know, you got a little leaven in the dough, you put some more dough in there, that leaven's going to keep leavening it because, I don't know, I'm not a scientist, it just does it. It just does it. Um, and we'll read uh, what Jesus says about this in Matthew 16, 5-12. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we have forgotten to take bread? But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves? Because you have brought no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves or the five thousand, or how many baskets you took back? Or the seven loaves and the four thousand, and how many large baskets you took up? Like, guys, like, don't you know I can handle this? Like, I'm not talking about uh, your subway. How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood, oh, I got it, that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread. Like, it's okay to have leavened bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees and Sadducees believed all sorts of crazy things. You know, they were all obsessed with the law and, you know, got to follow the law. You know, I'm going to tithe my mint and cumin, but you need help on a Sunday? Forget it, because it's the Sabbath. And they missed the point. Not that tithing these things is wrong, but, you know, God said that you need to love people. 
And the Sadducees, you know, they were Sadducees because they didn't believe in the, uh, the resurrection or, you know, this, really the spiritual realm. But basically Jesus is saying here, when we want to get rid of the leaven, we need to search our house like in Passover and get rid of all the leaven in our house, whether it's our physical house, uh, whether it's our spiritual house, our, our heart, our mind, you know, our body is the temple. Let's get rid of false doctrine, ungodly ideas, theories, leave it there, philosophies, attitudes, behaviors, and guess what? Turn to God's word. Oh, my professor says this, but God says this. God's a lot older than your professor. Um, you know, oh, Dr. Oz says this. Oh, but the great physician says this. You know, I won't, you know, be snarky on that. But 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God or woman may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, we should be eating the pure word of God and not letting other doctrines in. Like, if this is our daily bread, you know, let's not put a little leaven of the Pharisees in here. Let's not put a little leaven of Darwin in here. Let's not put a little leaven of Oprah in here. Let's not put a little leaven of, you know, liberal theology in here. Let's eat this daily bread. Unleavened. Unleavened. But why? Why should we even do that? Because we are truly unleavened. Because Jesus was the real Passover sacrifice. That means that we were once full of sin, and now we've been forgiven and cleansed of that sin, so that leaven should be out of us. And we talk about communion. It's the feast. You know, the Old Testament had all these feasts. Like there was one, uh, I forget which one it is, but uh, basically you would bring your offering of food to God, and um, you'd give like half to him, and you'd eat the other half, and you'd like hang out and eat with God. It was like one for me and one for my homie, you know. Like, you hung out, and you ate with God. And I remember reading that, going, that is awesome. Like, even God in the Old Testament said, hey, come have a meal with me. Come have a meal with me. Not like these idols of the world who take all your food. But, you know, God shares. But it's a feasting of eating with God. Like, when we take communion, yeah, that little cracker in that little cup doesn't really fill you up unless, like, you got a really tiny tummy. Um, like my baby. But she can eat way more than that, though. But I had to get one in there. But we're eating with the Lord. We're remembering. Like when Jesus broke the bread, it was at the Passover feast. He said, every time you eat, remember me. Remember this. Like when you go out to dinner, remember me. But we're to keep the feast. Not with the old system of law and animal sacrifice. Not with the sin within us. Like, yeah, I'm going to keep feasting on this sin that I've got going on. Out of communion with God in sincerity and truth. Like the Bible is clear about this. I need to be clear about this in my own life. Um, John 4, 23, 24 says, you know, those who worship God are going to now worship him in spirit and truth, not in this old system of a temple anymore. We're going to worship him uh, in spirit and truth. And that means also when we take communion, that your heart must be right, in right communion with God. When we take communion, our heart should be in communion with God. That doesn't mean be perfect. That doesn't mean, you know, I didn't sin at all this week because you just lied. But where's your heart? Is it unrepentance? Has God been pointing something out in your life? And you go, nope. Nope, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep doing it. And then communion elements come around and you go, sure. Yeah, I took communion. Everything's cool. And then your heart gets a little harder and a little harder. You know, God says not to do that. You know, in fact, in, the, in Acts and in the Bible, it talks about people who took communion and got sick or died. I haven't seen that happen, thankfully. You know, I barely like cleaning the bathroom, let alone dragging a dead body out of here. You know, like <laughs> Pastor Jim could do that. Read 9 through 11. 
I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous. So he's, he's expanding in here. It's not just sexual immorality. He thought you escaped. Or with covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the entire world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or a covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Again, that word, pornos, male prostitute, someone who indulges in unlawful sex, not to keep company. Now, keep company, um, uh, I learned how to pronounce it last night, and I forget, but it's where we get the word, it's, it's synonym and giving something, but it's where we get synonym. But it means to mix up together or to keep company with or to be intimate with one. Sorry, Tony. But, um, you know, he says words that mean the same thing. You know, sexually immoral, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, extortioner. Um, he says not to mix up with these people who claim to be believers who are mixed up in these things. You know, like not to have this close relationship with this person because there's something wrong there, something off there. And just like leaven will infect, eventually you'll get infected. Um, there's this old saying, um, I don't know who said it, but I'm going to say it. So it's like if you're trying to, it's easier, like if, if you're standing on like a, if I'm standing up here and I try and pull Jay up, I mean, Jay's much stronger than me, he's going to be all easier for him to pull me down than it is for me to pull him up. In the same way, if we're hanging out, like, oh, I'm just reaching out to the brother. Maybe. But it's much easier for them to pull you into what they're doing than for you to pull them out. Like any of you, you know, who have gotten saved out of the world and, you know, still hung out with your old friends and like loved on them and gone out to do things with them, know that like all of a sudden there's all this temptation around. Like everyone's drinking beer, but you're the only one with the Bible. Like, it's, what's more likely, that everyone else breaks out a Bible or that you break out a beer? It's like, you know, I don't know. We won't get into that either because that's another thick one. But uh, he's not talking about unbelievers because he says you have to go out of the world, and, and that word, world means the universe. Like, you'd have to take a spaceship, get an international space station, take another spaceship, and keep going until you die, and then keep going until you die, you know, for a million, million times, however big it is, God knows. But... You'd have to go out of the universe because you're not going to escape this in the world because sin is in the world. That's why Jesus came into the world. But for those who are called believers or named believers who practice these sinful behaviors, we're not to eat with them. We're not to hang out with them. That's not to say condemn, but that is to say rightfully judge. Say, hey, bro, hey, sis, hey, Mom, hey, Dad, hey, brother, hey, you know, daughter. You're sinning, and I love you, and I, I don't hate you, I don't condemn you, but this is, this is a pattern that your life is now going after. You've clearly stated these things to me. You, I've seen you do these things. You know, I, I can't have the same relationship with you anymore. I love you, and I, I want you to come back to the Lord, because I know you know the Lord, but I can't keep doing this stuff anymore. And I don't know what that, that plays out like in your life tonight. Um, but I think at least once in our life, probably way more, we're going to have to go through situations like this, especially in these last days, because the Bible says, in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. You know, not even to eat. Remember communion with such a person. Like, when we go eating, when we go out to eat, usually you go out to eat with friends or, or people you like or, you know, people you want to like or you think you like, you go out to eat with them. Um, you know, like, uh, my job just moved to another building we made this big move to the other side of town. But it's a really nice move. We moved from a place we were at that was really good for a long time 
right? I think they were there for 25 years, and we just moved to a really nice corporate complex with other businesses, and it's like, I feel like I've got to wear a suit now. But, um, you know, we've taken a, a, a nice step. You know, I'm really happy for my boss and my job that they've been able to, to move to this place because I, I think it's good for them um, and good for us as a, a business. But they have this, like, cafeteria, and it's really nice. You know, all the businesses in the building kind of go down there and eat. But I'm not, you know, generally, I'm not going to go find somebody that I don't know and sit right across from them. Hey, how are you doing? You know, can I have some? You know, and if someone does that to me, I don't know what's going to happen. But generally, you know, like in high school or in school, you know, everyone had their own little table you sat at or you went. Um, you know, when you go out to eat, generally you sit near people that, you know, you know. It's just we have these natural, like, boundaries. Most people do. But eating with strangers can be strange and intimidating. Um, you know, we share our hearts at dinner or at over a meal. We share stories. We share jokes. We make plans. We get advice. You know, we give advice, etc. So, like, a meal is a great way. Like, Jesus, you see Jesus eating with people a lot in the Bible. Um, you know, those who are, he said, hey, wait, Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. Yeah, but he didn't go to the brothel and eat with the prostitutes. He went to dinner at the guy's house, and they came there. The difference. There's a difference. Um, in the same way, like if we're not to eat with someone named uh, a brother, and I, you know, I don't mean to take it so literally, like you know, if the Lord's leading you to to, to do something, but I'm going to say that this is the first thing the Lord's going to lead you to do. Until you've done this, you're not going to get some special instruction because this is the special instruction. Um, but from there, um, you know, you're not really going to have maybe it's not eating, but you're not going to have the same intimate relationship because one, that doesn't let them know anything's gone wrong. You know, if you have a, like, if someone offends you, you know, even if you just consider it a personal relationship and not the relationship with the Lord, if someone offends you, you know, and they're close to you, sometimes you'll put a wall up or, you know, are you giving me the silent treatment? You know, did I do something? You know, but this isn't my life, this is your life. But, (laughs) (laughs) it's a joke, pulled that from the word. But the point is, it's like, even in our own personal relationships, we automatically start putting up these walls, like, maybe it's a selfish wall because you're hurt. You don't want to be hurt again, or you know. And this thing, we're not to to do this because there's going to be this communion, this this leaven is going to be exchanged, and it tells them that, oh, I'm not doing anything wrong. I guess it's like I can go away and do this. Like if I wore like swim shorts and sandals and like a Hawaiian shirt to work tomorrow, my boss didn't say anything. I mean, she probably wouldn't because we're pretty laid back. But it's like, you know, if you did that into a business meeting and no one said, what are you wearing? You know, you'd probably continue to wear it. Eventually, you'd probably come in in like just shorts and say, hey. Like my tan? Because you think you can get away with it. And maybe you can. I don't know. Maybe you're selling swim trucks. I don't know. Let's go on. Let's finish this up. For what, uh, verse 12. For what I have, eh, excuse me. Let's start over. For what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. And again, we're not to condemn unbelievers. Their unbelief and sin already does that. Like when Jesus said, he says, I don't come to condemn. I come to save you guys. Like, later I'm coming, but I'm giving you a chance first. Like, we're not to go out like, you're in sin, and you're evil, and you're wrong. Yeah, when we have an opportunity to share with them, yeah, the Bible is this, Jesus came to die for you for this, and yeah, what you're doing is wrong, but we're not to, like, judge and condemn unbelievers because they're unbelievers. You know, they're already in their judgment. And they're going to get worse, you know, if they don't repent. But it says, we're to judge believers. First um, Peter four seventeen to 18 says, For the time has come, I think Pastor Owen read this recently, for judgment to begin at the house of God. 
What's that? The church. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Like, I'll go on. Now, if the righteousness, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? He's saying, like, you know, if we barely get by because of the grace of God, the people on the outside are in big trouble. You know? We are to put away those who claim to be believers so that they will realize they are sinning and repent. Again, the, the end is always for them to repent. The end is not for them to be homeless and, you know, maybe that's what it takes, but not to condemn them to hell. Like, get out of here. I never want to see you again. You're a sinner. Blah, blah, blah. It's to say, hey, I can't have anything to do with you. You know, you want to continue to live in sin? God doesn't support sin. Like the prodigal son. The prodigal son, uh, you know, he goes to his dad and says, hey, I want my inheritance. And his dad gives him his inheritance. And he says, ah, I'm going to go out. And he, he blows it all on wild living. He ends up in a pig pen. You know, the end of all our sinful behaviors is always like this nasty, disgusting place where there's no one there really to, to kind of help. And those who do help kind of give us the same food that the pigs get. And in that place, he goes, man, like, my dad had it all together. Even the servants were eating better than this. Let me just go back to my dad's house. and Maybe he'll let me be a servant. And as he's going back, the dad runs out and meets him and has a party and the other sibling is like, what is going on? Like, I've done everything. I've done all my chores and homework and I don't get a party. And I think sort of like, the, you know, the Lord says, like, it, it, you know, he does leave the 99 to get to the one. But, and he will pursue you if you're in sin, thankfully. Because if he didn't, we'd all be lost. But in some sense, if, if we know God and we take our inheritance and we say, I'm going to go spend it on the world and spend it on myself, even though I know the truth of God and I know the riches of God, he'll say, okay, and let us go. But he'll be waiting for us to come back with open arms. He'll even run out to meet us as soon as we say we want to come back. He'll probably be sitting at the door going, come on, just turn, just turn. How much is it going to take? Is it really going to take losing your job? Is it really going to take losing your family? Is it really going to take this and that? Like, seriously, like you lose all your friends and you're still going? Oh, please stop. And then when we finally do repent, you know, maybe it said, like for me, it was like at the very end of the line. Like I lost everything, you know, I won't go into it now, but it's like my life was like at the end. It was like, I have nothing left. I got no hope. I got nothing, you know, no friends, no life. God, okay. Like there was other things involved, but basically it wasn't like I was riding my high horse and I had money in my pocket and all these other things. Oh, God sounds like a good idea. Usually it takes us because we're pretty dumb, you know, myself, the chief dummy of them all to go out and do stuff and blow it and realize that our way stinks. Our way smells like pig slop. And then we turn to God. And sometimes that's what it takes. And the Lord doesn't want it to go that far, but he'll let it go as far as it does. Because as far as it goes in this world, and if we still choose him, that's way better than hell. But we're to put those away, and, you know, to protect other believers, to bring this person to repentance. But also Matthew 7, 21, 23 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, you know, the day of judgment when the Lord comes back, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Like, we never had communion. Yeah, you, you put on my t-shirt and you even exercise demons, but we never had real communion. Maybe you took communion but we never ate together. We never had this intimate time together. We never shared these real things together. But how much better for them if they are cast off now with the hope of repentance and cast off later in the hell with no chance of restoration? 
we cast off this person who believes to be a believer or a people or, you know, denomination or whatever it is and say, hey, we love you, but this ain't right. We can't do things with you. And the Bible says don't be unequally yoked because we love you and we want to make sure that you're doing what the Bible says and not in a self-righteous attitude and with a humble spirit checking our hearts like before you deal with the speck in your brother's eye, deal with the plank in your own. Because it's far better that we do that than Jesus do that to them and, and they end up in hell with weeping and gnashing of teeth and the lake of fire and all that scary stuff, which is awesome at the end of the Bible. But keep the feast. Keep the feast. Stay close with God. Make your home. Make your home a place for your family. You know, the Bible says as much as possible with you, live peaceably with, with those around you. Like, Make your home, you know. Make your home a sanctuary. Make your church your family. There's people around you, you know, yeah, you guys probably sit in similar seats every week, but there's no coincidences. God knows why you're sitting there. Like, you know, it doesn't mean that you're supposed to be lifelong friends, but make them your family. Make sure also that we, this is for myself too, for all these things, that we are truly doing the loving thing and not doing the thing that just won't hurt someone's feelings or won't hurt our feelings. I think a lot of times in these situations, we, we're so close to it that we're, you know, we basically put this situation above what the Word of God says. And we say, I'm just going to love on this person, but what is really loving this person in this situation? You know, let's keep the feast. Let's do the loving thing. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you, God, that, Lord, you're so good and you're so kind and that you do let us do our own thing. You give us free will, but... Father, you still chase us and still want us to come to you. And we thank you, God, that you discipline those you love. That, God, you always work about a way for our good and for repentance and for salvation. And the end of it all, Lord, is you just want us to know you and have communion with you. Because after all, that's, that's what heaven is, God. And we all want to be there. And we all want those we love and we know to be there. We pray that for those who are unrepentant and they're here or in our lives, that they would come to repentance. We pray that you give us uh, loving words and actions. We pray that you... Uh, Help us really to, to clean the leaven out of our, our, our physical house and also our spiritual house. And uh, God, we just ask that you'd bring us into communion with you, that you'd forgive us of our sin, that like that Passover, you would pass over us, you'd cover us in your blood, and that we wouldn't have to worry about death. And, uh, God, we just praise you for who you are, that even aside from all this, God, you are who you are. And even if the whole Bible was hard sayings and things we could never understand, and, and even... I don't know, anything, Lord. Even if you just said, I'm God and I'm here, that's it. You're still worth it, Lord, but you're greater than that. And we thank you for it. And, uh, just be blessed tonight, God. Uh, I pray for everyone here that you just keep them safe. Make us all a family in this church and with those other churches that are following you. And we pray that you'd uh, come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.